Um, I, I thought that was really clever, but <laughs> apparently none of you are. If there's, um, if there's one smell, smell that's common to every home with young kids in it, let's see if we can get this thing up here. This one is a little bit harder to work than the one I'm used to. Let's see. All right. So if there's one smell that's common to every home where there's young kids in it. Now, there are a lot of smells in homes with young kids. Most of them are not pleasant. But if there's, if there's one smell that I think is, is common to every home where there's a young kid, it's the smell of spoiled milk. Right? You know, you know the kind of milk that you find in a sippy cup underneath the couch that's been there for days? Weeks? Who knows the last time we saw that sippy cup, right? Uh, When you go to the sink to try to pour it out, it doesn't pour. It kind of oozes out. It kind of crawls out like a glacier. You know, and when it finally plops down into the sink, it's like it reaches its green, gooey hands up into your nostrils and just grabs hold of there. And, And like hours later, you'll smell spoiled milk. Some of you are smelling it right now and you haven't had kids for 30 years. Um, so at least this dad is not always really anxious about cleaning those sippy cups. And I've got this um, great habit that Lindsay really loves of letting them collect alongside the sink for a couple of three days or so. And then I just go and I, I unscrew them all at once and then, and then clean them all at once. It's kind of like ripping a Band-Aid off, okay? Um, well, the other night I was, um, I was a bit distracted. We were in the middle of the bedtime sprint and we're trying to wrestle clothes on the kids and um, we're trying to brush their teeth and uh, read them stories and I'm a bit distracted. And Lindsay, kind of in the midst of that says, Eric, will you go make Foster a bottle? So I'm like, sure, babe. So I go and I grab a new bottle of milk out of the pantry, a new, a new bottle for milk. I, I pour some fresh milk into it and I put it in the microwave for 30 seconds because our boy likes his milk warm before bed, you know. Well, when I take the bottle to him and Lindsay in his bedroom, he, he kind of froze his brow when he puts it to his lips and he won't drink it. And Lindsay feels it and she says, did you microwave this? And I think, well, I think I did. Ah, and then I'm thinking, is our microwave broken? I'm like, that's the last thing we need is a broken microwave. I said, okay, I'm sorry, honey. Let me go microwave it. So I walk back into the kitchen and I microwave it for 30 seconds. I take it back to him. It suits him. He drinks it. So then we put the boys down and we walk into the kitchen and we both notice at the same time this bottle of warm milk. And I'm thinking, what kind of sorcery is this? Right? And then Lindsay looks at the microwave, which happens to be right beside the sink, which happens to be lined with old bottles that I have not yet cleaned. And she gets this crazy eye and she looks at me. And I've seen this crazy eye before. And so I begin to try to quickly put things together. And I realize that somewhere between the microwave, the sink, and my boy's bedroom, I grabbed one of those old bottles of spoiled milk. I took it to him. He didn't like it, obviously, until I heated it up. (laughs) And then he drank it all. Uh, So it worked, right? Uh, 
It worked until 1 a.m. When I go into his bedroom and he's, he's wailing and crying and I reach down to pick him up and the first thing I touch is wet and warm and chunky. And, and the smell of spoiled milk that we're all so familiar with comes back into my nostrils, but it comes along with the smell of partially digested spaghetti and applesauce, right? It smells great. I got the crazy eye from Lindsay another time or two that night. Distraction <clears throat> is a dangerous thing. It often stinks too. If you were gonna pull the thread that runs through Matthew 23, through Jesus' critique of the Pharisees that runs through the whole chapter, I think that thread is the thread of distraction. When we arrive on the scene, Jesus is mad. And one, one commentator said, this is Jesus cursing a blue streak. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So what's he so mad about? Well. At the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees aren't practicing what they preach. They'll only do a good thing if somebody's around to celebrate them for it. They focus on little things in the Bible and they, they neglect things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And they say things like, we would never kill one of the prophets like our ancestors did. They were so backwards back then. But of course, we know they're about to be trying to kill Jesus. He says, you are snakes. You are a brood of vipers. So each of those critiques is probably worth stopping and thinking about. But today what I want to do is think about what's, what's the one thing that unites them all? Or if I was a doctor, we were in the, the, the medical room and I, I was to say, well, these are the presenting symptoms. So what's the sickness? And I think to kind of get at that, you've got to pay attention to where Jesus is prescriptive. So for most of Genesis or most of Matthew 23, Jesus is just describing their symptoms. So he's, he's like the doctor sitting there writing in the patient chart, everything that's wrong with these Pharisees. But then there comes this point where Jesus takes the white pad out of his pocket and he writes a prescription. And that's what we want to pay attention to. That's in verse 26. He writes, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. That's the prescription. Now let's stop, stop here for a second, because the Pharisees get a really bad rap in the New Testament. They're kind of villainous, but these are, these are really good folks. Okay, I mean, when it comes to religion, everybody back then thought the Pharisees are the best of the best. I mean, they're, they're the kind that are at church every time the doors are open. They're the kind that go to church even on vacation. They're the kind that go to church when it's daylight savings time <laughs> and there's snow on the ground and it's the first Sunday of spring break. I mean, these are the best of the best, the Pharisees. But, but Jesus does see them a little bit differently in Matthew 23, because he says, no Pharisees, you're like dirty dishes. Or to, or to stay with our story from earlier, you're like a bottle of spoiled milk. It's one thing to wipe the outside of the bottle off, but the inside's still spoiled milk. He, he switches metaphors to say the same thing. He says, okay, you're, all this stuff you do to appear religious, it'd be like painting a grave or a tomb with a new coat of paint. It doesn't change the fact, even though it looks pretty, that on the inside there are rotting bones. He says, that's what you're like. This is a classic case of distraction. 
you're worried about all the wrong things. When inside, you're full of rotten, spoiled junk. And Jesus, the good doctor says, clean the inside. That's all you got to do. Clean the inside. But what does that mean? Well, um, Lindsay and I are watching this show called This Is Us. Anybody else watching that? Yeah. And one of the characters in the show, uh, young lady, is, is very overweight. And she deals with a lot of shame about that. So she's considering gastric bypass surgery. But she's kind of talking herself out of it. And this really rude character comes up to her and says, you're afraid, aren't you? And she says, yes. And she says, you're not afraid of the surgery. You're afraid that you'll have the surgery and you'll lose all that weight. And you'll find out that deep down inside, you're still the same miserable person. Yeah, like super rude. But in her case, that kind of turns out to be true. And she's been focused on this one thing for so long that she doesn't really know who she is. She's been distracted and she's terrified to find out. I think, I think that story's helpful in diagnosing the Pharisees here and understanding why Jesus is prescribing that they clean the inside of the cup. There is this, this really great temptation in faithfulness. Maybe it's a condition, okay, to not ever truly investigate who I am in Jesus Christ. To not ever fully know who am I before the Lord God Almighty. Um, I, you know, I, I think there is this fear that if we kind of peel back all those layers that are insulating that truest self from God and from our own eyes, that we'll get down there to the core and we'll not like what we find. We'll be disappointed. So instead of disappointment, we just let ourselves be distracted by a lot of good things, some bad things, anything to keep us from the most important thing. So um, that's, that's what I've discovered in ministry is, is kind of a red flag. And, and the way that I hear it, the way that flag begins to wave for me is when somebody says, we've come so far, we've come so far. That's what the Pharisees are saying in verse 30. They say, we have come so far. We would never kill one of the prophets like our ancestors did. We would never do something like that. I see that all the time. I think teachers probably see it sometimes. You'll, you'll talk to a group that's doing a group project. You know who probably is not contributing to that group project. So they're all together and you ask them, well, how's it coming? And that person inevitably says, we've gotten a lot done. Right. <clears throat> Or when a, a couple who's struggling with their marriage comes and talks to me, inevitably the worst offender will say, well, we've come a long way. We've come a long way. I think there's probably truth in it, but it's when I say that, we've come so far. That what I'm doing is, is trying to group myself into some general idea or concept of progress rather than dealing with my own lack of progress. How far have I really come? How much have I really done? And if I don't ask those questions, then I'm capable, like the Pharisees, of repeating history, of killing one of God's prophets in this case. That potential is inside me if I've never dealt with it. 
do I know myself? I think that's the question Jesus is asking us here. Do you know yourself? Now, have you exposed your truest self to your, your own eyes and to the Lord God? Or are you praying that he is distracted too? Uh, this is the really hard work of faith, I think. I think this is the hardest part about traveling in the Jesus way. Because in Matthew 23, Jesus wants the Pharisees to do all those kind of classic things we think about. He wants them to be generous, to help other people, to tithe, to be gracious, to make casseroles for potlucks, to show up to church when it's daylight savings, like all those kind of normal things. But the really hard work is to make sure that all those good normal things that they flow out of our truest self, known deeply, centered in God, and that they are not distractions that keep us from knowing ourselves, which they can certainly be. <clears throat> so if that's what cleaning the inside of the cup means, self-examination, how do you do that? Well, this is where Jesus kind of leaves us with a cliffhanger because he doesn't really explain that. And so what we do as good Christians is we, we kind of look at the rest of scripture. We look at church history and tradition. And those two things tell us that there are two ways to self-examine, to know yourself. One is suffering and the other is silence. Suffering and silence. They both start with S, so it's true. Of course, you don't have a lot of control over suffering, do you? But inevitably, you'll experience it. Uh, a friend of mine, I think in light of some of the stuff we're dealing with, told me recently that all of us are either heading into a crisis, heading out of one, or smack dab in the middle. Think about physical suffering for, as an example <clears throat> of what I'm talking about. I think suffering has this way of stripping away all the other distractions that are keeping us from focusing on what's most important and pressing. So I, I pledged a social club in college and um, it, the first night, midnight, is what they call it, one of the hardest physical things I've ever done. And I'd, I'd tell you about it, but I'd have to, well, it would be bad for all of you. And um, so the first night we all line up and we're in these white shirts, we're these like green-eyed 18-year-old boys and white shirts and jeans. And by the time the sun came up the next day, they huddled us together for this picture. And we were all covered in mud and sand. We are weary, uh, just blurry-eyed, exhausted from that hard night. And they gather us together for this picture, I'll never forget it. And even after starting with all white shirts, the only white in that picture is the white in our eyes. We are absolutely undone and overcome by how hard this night is. But at the end of that night, I knew myself in ways I did not know myself before. You know, I knew this is my breaking point. This is what I'm capable of. This is what I'm not capable of. This is where I've got to rely on other people. And this is where I can carry others. I think that kind of awareness is why some of you are distance runners or bikers, right? Because you get to this point in running a marathon or half marathon or farther where you are so focused that, you know, the mortgage you've got to pay, the to-do list at work, all that drifts away. And all you can think about is the next breath. 
right? You're just totally present in that moment. I think the non-voluntary kind of suffering does the same thing for us. You know, Lindsay and I and our family are, are really asking these questions of ourselves that we've never asked before when things have been going well. We're dealing with her father-in-law's accident and suddenly like we are all exploring what we're really made of. It was really down deep. Suffering has this way of eliminating those distractions and helping us kind of clean the inside of the cup. What's down there deep? Because that's what you're going to have to rely on. So <clears throat> the other way to do it is silence. And uh, the people who know the most about silence are what we call the desert fathers and mothers. Those are people that from the earliest centuries of the church went out into usually the desert and just prayed by themselves. And so in the fifth century, one of those desert fathers told a story about three friends and they all wanna serve Jesus. So the first friend decides that he's gonna be a peacemaker. He's gonna dedicate his life to peacemaking because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So anywhere he sees animosity and anger, he's gonna to try to solve that. He's gonna spend his life doing that. And the second friend says, he's gonna go take care of the sick. He's gonna work in a hospital. And he's gonna do that because Jesus said, um, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And the third friend says, I'm gonna to go to the desert and pray and be still before God because the Lord is in his holy temple at all the earth, keep silent before him. So the first friend, after years of trying to make peace, is so frustrated because every time he creates peace between two people, new people are mad at each other. He can't get on top of it. So he goes to the second friend and he says, how's it going helping the sick? And his friend says, I'm so frustrated because every time I help somebody get better, somebody else gets sick. And he says, I know what you mean. Let's go see our friend in the desert. So I, I guess they kind of like Googled his address, his cave. I don't know how you find people in the desert, but they find him. And they show up to his cave and they say, you know, we've been having all these troubles serving Jesus. What have you done for Jesus out here in the desert? And he says, nothing. Because he hasn't talked in a long time. He's kind of lost some social skills. So he just says nothing. And then he goes and he gets this pitcher of water in this bowl and he begins to, to pour the water into the bowl. First thing he says is, look at the water. And they do and the water's kind of mixed up and ripples are going everywhere. It's agitated because he's pouring into it. He stops pouring, he puts the pitcher down and then they just sit in silence for a while. And then he says, look at the water. And now when they look at the water, it's still, it's like a mirror. And they look into the water and they see the reflections in the water. And he says, this is what I've been doing for Jesus. They want him to explain that. And he says, well, this water, this, this is how it is for anyone who's living and working among people. All the activity and the commotion and the noise, they interfere, they distract us, blocking one from seeing one's own faults. But when you practice stillness and silence, you see them. Uh, I, I shared that story with staff at our staff meeting last week, and us, uh, some of us hated it because it kind of sets up this false dichotomy, right? Either you're going to help people or you're going to spend time with Jesus in the desert. You know, I can just imagine telling Lindsay, Lindsay, 
you handle the kids. I'm just going to go to the desert and pour water in bowls and stuff like that. She'd be like, stay there. Don't come back. It's a parable, right? It's trying to, to teach us something. And what it's trying to teach us is that silence and stillness before God has this way of removing distractions and allowing us to see ourselves like nothing else does. Jesus believed that. If, if you read Luke 4, 5, and 6, maybe you'll do that this afternoon, you'll see that there's this pattern where Jesus does ministry with people, ministers to his disciples, and then goes to a solitary place. That phrase shows up again and again in Luke 4, 5, and 6. He returns from the solitary place. He's ready to do ministry, be with his disciples, and then he goes back to the solitary place. And that's a lot less, less like a, uh, a desert father who goes out for years to the desert. And it's more like you or me getting up 20 minutes before the kids do, before our spouse does, and just being still before God, before all the alarms start going off and you're throwing on clothes. You, you just take that moment to be still, to prepare yourself for whatever it is God's gonna bring you in that day to kind of know who you are, to know what you can handle in this day that's ahead, that 20 minutes maybe. If we don't wanna be like the Pharisees in Matthew 23, if we don't wanna have these symptoms, then Jesus would say, well, you gotta treat the sickness. And the sickness is that you don't know yourself. You've never kind of taken the time to clean the inside of the cup. And he's talking to me here too. And so the way to clean the inside of the cup, there's really two ways. You could suffer, but, but that's really hard and you don't have any control over it. It's possible God will use your suffering to produce in you perseverance and character and hope like Paul says in Romans 5, but, but that's not the thing you control. What you can control is silence. If that's a tool on your belt, you can use any time. And so I'm not talking about wordy prayers. I'm not talking about just getting there and interceding for other people and just begging God on behalf of the world. There's a time for that. What I'm talking about is when you just come before God and you get still and quiet and you ask God to fill the stillness, which is a very different thing. If that sounds really abstract to you, it's because it's hard to put into words something you have to do like this. And so to kind of help you with that, let me, let me offer you two practical things you could do and I'll wrap up. The first is that on Good Friday, which is April 14th, we're hosting a silent retreat here at the church, which to some of you gives you great anxiety to even think about that. So start praying about it now. Maybe you should be there. If it does give you anxiety, it's probably because there's some fear about peeling back those layers and finding what's at the core. So it'll be a good time to do that. There'll be info about it in the link in coming weeks. And then secondly, out there in the comments, we're selling Chris's Growing With God books. There are these, these pamphlets of prayer exercises that really are designed to kind of help somebody coach them through silence with God. This came from Chris spending a month in essentially silence. And um, those are available out there in the comments for $5. There's just a little honor box. I don't I don't get a commission on those like I do on baptisms. So um, just <laughs> only a couple of you even caught that. That's why I've been baptizing some people three and four times. I get, I get half the rate on a, a, a second baptism, but it, it's still worth it, right? Okay, I'm kidding. 
apparently we need to work that into my contract because nobody's really that phased by that. Uh, I know I don't get commissioned on these books. Uh, I just asked Chris if we could make those available because they're a great resource and they've been really helpful for me. So those are available for $5 out there, just guiding you through silence. Okay, listen, let me end with this and let me invite the praise team back up. Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he's not prepared to help us with. So Jesus, at the end of Matthew 23, in one of the most beautiful images in scripture, he says that he longs to gather the Pharisees. I think like he longs to gather us. And he longs to gather us like a mother hen does her chicks, he says. Like a mother hen does her chicks. So you can just imagine these, these gracious and loving wings just reaching out to draw these chicks in towards themselves. But, but I think the problem is that so many of us are off pecking at every other little thing that we're kind of missing those wings drawing us in. And so the thought of, of, of being drawn close to Jesus like that, we realize isn't really our truest heart's desire right now. That there are other things we desire more, that we think about more often, that we long for with greater intensity than that. And those are distractions. Those are distractions. And so if we could rid ourselves of those, by knowing who we really are in Jesus Christ, the gentle tug of those wings would be our heart's greatest desire. And Jesus would draw us in. Let's sing together this morning. Will you stand with me? I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know